By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, from Hong Kong SAR, my co-host Jun Yang is going to talk to Moody's banking team analyst Rebecca Tan in Singapore about a big turnaround for India's public sector banks. Jun, welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Daniel. Same to you. So Jun, not that long ago, India's public sector banks were really not performing too well you know, with high levels of non-performing loans and problems with underwriting and management. What's happened? Well, as you know, the story has changed. The public sector banks are really out of the woods now in terms of shedding their non-performing loans, and the economy is strong on a relative basis too. Right, and Moody's just took positive rating actions on four of India's public sector banks. That's right. Rebecca will explain a little more about what was behind those positive rating actions. Jun, I am really looking forward to your discussion with Rebecca in just a few minutes. But first, I'm here with Moody's analyst, Tomoya Suzuki in Tokyo. Hi, Tomoya. Welcome back. Thanks, Daniel. So, Tomoya, the Japanese government in recent years has made it an objective to get Japan much more cashless to shift over to digital payments. Your report talks about that and what it means for regional banks. So to start with just some context, is it safe to say that the reason behind the government's push toward cashlessness in Japan is a general aim to increase productivity and make its businesses more consumer friendly and ultimately to better compete in the global economy? Also, you know, maybe to keep up with Korea and China, among other countries in Asia Pacific that are already much more cashless? Well, the use of cash remains prevalent in Japan, but the adoption of electronic transactions will accelerate. And because you don't need as many employees to handle cash, it will help ease labor shortage constraints that are a feature of Japan's aging and shrinking population. Right. So you're going to need fewer employees to do cash handling type work, which is handy when you have a smaller labor pool to begin with. And I guess that also will reduce cash handling costs. What about what we might call the user experience in terms of having more electronic payments in Japan? I mean, that should be a change for the better in many ways, right? It's user-friendly, as you said, including for inbound tourists who are used to cashless transactions. Korea and China are globally leading cashless payments, but Japan is accelerating the pace of cashless transactions. Right. Got it. And where is Japan right now in terms of how widespread the use of cash is versus digital payments? So right now, around one-third of payments are digital. The Japanese government aims to raise the ratio of cashless payments through credit or debit cards, e-money, and QR codes in total private sector consumption 
to 40% in 2025 and ultimately to 80%. To that end, the government has introduced a number of initiatives and ease regulations. I see. So what tools is the government using to get there? I've read that there's a certain amount of resistance to digital payments, especially from the older population and small businesses. And, you know, 80 percent, that's a a pretty as an ultimate goal. That's that's pretty that's a big change. Well, the government plans to introduce a system for companies pay salaries electronically by early 2023. To be clear, companies have a long time been able to pay salaries to workers by direct transfers to bank accounts. But this would allow companies to pay directly to mobile payment apps and other electronic forms that do not involve bank or brokerage accounts. Got it, I see. And what other incentives are there for people or businesses to adopt digital payments? That's a good question, Daniel. So, following an increase in Japan's consumption tax rate to 10% from 8% in October 2019, the government introduced a reward point program linked to all types of cashless payment options to boost consumption. The government also gave subsidies to small and medium-sized businesses for installing cashless payment systems, and that's because small businesses have limited resources to invest and lack incentives to accept cashless payments because high settlement fees erode their already thin margins. Right. You hear that kind of discussion around credit card fees here and so forth from small businesses. So thank you for putting all that in some context. Now, your report was really focusing on what this drive toward cashlessness means for Japan's regional banks. And the key takeaway there is that it's It's not good for them, for their revenue. Why is that? There are a couple main reasons. Regional banks derive significant revenues from fund transfer services, and they don't have a lot of other services or products to make up for that revenue. And this is because they are most often on the receiving end of fund transfers, and it's the receiving bank in a fund transfer that gets paid. I see. Can you give me an idea of how much lower digital fees are than banks' fund transfer services in Japan? Sure. And just explain why the digital payments are so much cheaper than at banks' branches or ATMs. Banks lower the digital payment fees a lot in order to compete with fintech companies that do not charge any fees at all. So, for example, Mizuho Bank charged 710 yen at branches and 380 yen at ATMs for an interbank transfer of less than 30,000 yen as of early October 2022. The fee drops to 150 yen for internet and mobile banking. I see. Yeah, that's a big difference. So is there anything the banks can do to offset the loss in revenue as the shift toward digital payments accelerates among their customer base? You know, there are more the big banks can do, the city banks, the mega banks, not so much the regional banks. In fact, the three mega banks, Mizuho, MFG, and SNBC, plus Regional Bank and Saitama Regional Bank, have formed their own network called Cultura, 
that allows individuals to transfer funds among those banks plus a group of others by a mobile app free of charge up to 100,000 yen. The move shows that the participating banks are willing to forego large parts of revenue from fund transfers to retain customers. Yet, uh, it is questionable how competitive the new system can be against fintech companies because Kotra still requires senders to provide personal information, while fintech services only require QR codes or unique identification numbers. Interesting. So now Japanese banks are competing against fintechs as well as these other Kotra member banks for customers. What about credit cards? How do they fit into this picture? So uh, credit cards are going to benefit the mega banks and just a very few large regional banks that dominate the credit card business. And that's because credit cards are going to be the dominant mode of cashless payment for a while. There are QR code-based alternatives from fintech companies, but these don't give enough incentive to users to switch. But there is still competition here. Uh, some fintech companies like Rakuten are offering their own credit cards. Tomoya, thank you so much. And we're now joined by my co-host Jun Yang in Hong Kong SAR, here to talk to Rebecca Tan in Singapore about how India's public sector banks have recovered from a few years back when they were reeling from a high level of non-performing loans. Thanks, Danielle. Rebecca, hi. Hi, Jun. Uh, Rebecca, the credit strength of India's public sector banks has improved and Moody's just took a rating action on board these banks. I wanted to ask you uh, what the story is here, uh, but b- before we get there, uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about what the uh, macroeconomic backdrop is like. Uh, regular listeners may remember that uh, we talked about this with another, another Moody's colleague on your team uh, back in October 2022. Of course, Jun, happy to do that. If we look at real GDP growth for India, we're expecting that to decline to 5.6% for the fiscal ending March 2024 from 7% in this fiscal. And that's because of global financial tightening and slowing external demand. Having said that, India will still be one of the best performing large economies in the G20. The country's underlying growth dynamics are strong, and that's supported by a rebound in services activity and government capital expenditure. In addition to all that, over the past year, the private sector has also started to emerge from the deleveraging process, and that's reflected primarily in the very healthy rate of credit growth. So this suggests to us that private capital expenditure will have some room to run. Got it. So uh, with that background in mind, uh, what were the main drivers that led to the positive breeding action on, on these four banks? And to be specific, uh, those banks are the State Bank of India, or SBI, uh, Bank of Baroda, Canara Bank, and the Punjab National Bank, right? That's right. Well, there are three key drivers for the positive rating action. Number one, improvement in the bank's operating environment. Number two, improvements in the bank's credit metrics. And number three, our continued assumption of a very high level of government support to the banks in times of need because of their high deposit market share and strong linkages to the government. 
on number on point number two, the banks themselves have put in a lot of work into reducing the stock of legacy problem loans over the past three years. And to quote some numbers here, gross non-performing loan ratio declined by an average of about seven percentage points across the four banks that we took positive rating action on between 2018 and 2022. New non-performing loans formation rates over the last two quarters was also at the lowest in a decade and less than 1%. Provisions against non-performing loans have also improved across all four banks. So what we think is that these improvements in asset quality will support profits because of lower credit costs. I see. Um, and what about the relative performance of India's economy? How does that factor into the public sector bank's credit strength? Well, Jun, we touched briefly on this in the first question. If we look at the corporate sector, which was where bulk of the asset quality issues were coming from, corporate's financial health has improved after a decade of deleveraging. Stress among non-bank financial institutions has also abated. Now, if we then look at retail loans, these have performed well through the pandemic, and that points to better underwriting quality and relatively low household leverage in India compared to those in many other Asian countries. Having said that, we do expect loans to small and medium-sized enterprises to continue to pose risks to banks' asset quality. And that's because this segment is the most vulnerable to interest rate rises. Got it. So, okay, lower non-performing loans, a more supportive operating environment thanks to a relatively strong economy. Are there any other major drivers you haven't mentioned yet behind the improvement in the credit strength of the public sector banks? Well, Daniel, not a key driver per se but a point that highlights the improvements made by the banks over the past few years, which is that their capital has strengthened. And that's particularly as the banks went out to raise capital from the equity market. And we expect further improvements in the bank's financial health to support their abilities to raise further equity capital from the market if they need to. And this will help reduce their dependence on capital support from the Indian government. I see. Rebecca and Jun, thank you both very much for your insights. And thank you also to Moya. And a big thank you, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. To dive a little deeper into any of the topics in this episode, you can go to the link to this episode at moody's.com slash podcasts and click on the show notes. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast streaming platform, please remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again soon for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.